Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Sunday, February 21st, 2021, starting at 2.33 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. Uh, so today, today I'm going to be talking with Yasmin Boland about the void of course moon and some of the different ways that the concept of void of course is defined. So hey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. So um, we, you've been asking me for a little bit, for like a week or two maybe, to do an interview for your show to talk about the Void of Course Moon because you learned and have been wrestling with some of the different ways that it's defined in, in ancient astrology versus how it's defined in modern astrology. And so we're recording this today as something that might do double duty for both of our programs as just sort of a casual discussion about that topic. Um, yes. So that's part of the background. So how did you, let's first introduce you to my audience if there's anybody that's not familiar with your work. So um, the moon is something that you really focus in on and specialize in in astrology, right? Yes. So I studied astrology like everybody else, um, maybe slightly differently. I had lots of different teachers along the way. I like to think I've had lots of amazing, amazing mentors. And I, I mean, I just studied astrology like anyone else does, and I had all the books that everybody else does. It was not not that I sort of tuned into the moon, but at one point in my studies, probably about two years in, um, I was having a conversation with one of my very early mentors, and I said to her, um, what about moonology? And she's like, huh, what, what? I'm like, what about moonology? And she said, and then she's quite psychic, this woman, and she said, but hang on a minute, actually, I think that's a really important word for you. And I said, oh, okay. So I just kept it in my mind. And along around about that time, I was discovering um, meditation and, you know, chakras and all that kind of, you know, stuff that people like me are interested in. And um, I came upon, um, firstly, I think I came upon the fact that um, women had traditionally uh, done their magic spells uh, at the new moon which kind of fascinated me. And then I also came upon uh, Jan Spiller's book, New Moon Astrology. And um, I I felt like something that I hadn't felt for many years. I was a journalist at the time, really. And, uh, and I just became obsessed. You know when something just grips you and you're just like, oh, my God. And I ordered this book off Amazon. It was back in the day. I was living in Bondi Beach in Sydney, Australia. And I just couldn't wait to get my hands on this book. And the whole thing kind of just went from there. And I started working with the moon. And as I, I don't think I've mentioned to you on air, I mentioned off air, um, my moon is conjunct my MC. I mean, it's like one degree out. It's really like, and, you know, now I look back and I think, oh, of course I do moonology. And that's the name of my website. I've also got a website of my name. Um, but I registered the URL and it's literally just grown organically. I, I ended up doing some media astrology and everybody else was really into it as well, the moon. And, you know, I mean, I personally think that the reason why this is all coming up now, the moon, is because I think that the divine feminine is re-emerging. And women have always worked traditionally with the moon. So I think, you know, my publishers are like, wow, it's so great that the moon's so popular. I'm like, I think it's part of what's happening in the world. I think it's, you know, it's as tied into, you know, what's happening in the world as the Me Too movement is or was or, you know, all this kind of thing is connected. So the moon has always been my thing and I just gravitated towards it and I love the fact that you can teach people how to make new moon wishes and we do full moon forgiveness as a way of, working with all the emotions that come up with a full moon. And, um, 
you know, and I, I kind of took out the astrology in a way and just left moonology. And so I've always paid attention to the void, of course, moon ever since I, you know, first read about it. Um, and But I did not know. I mean, I did know about it, but I didn't know it was kind of, I, I knew about it, but I didn't know that people still used it or the video that I saw you doing on YouTube, you was, it was very like it could be current. And I just became fascinated with the idea of talking to you about it. So <laughs> that's why we're here, I think. Okay, brilliant. So yeah, you, so your book is titled Moonology, Working with the Magic of Lunar Cycles. That's and it's it right been a there. popular book. What year did that come out? Came out in 2016. Okay. And it's still in the Amazon Astrology bestsellers. Okay, brilliant. And it's amazing. But I so, think it's the divine feminine. I don't think it's my book. <laughs> okay. Um, so what or, let, let, why don't we define void of course as a concept then? So the moon has always been obviously a very important body in astrology. It's still a very important body. While in you know early 20th century astrology, the sun, due to the invention of sun sign astrology, became more and more important. Um, the moon, like realizing or learning that you have a moon sign, is like one of the first things that astrologers learn when they actually get into the subject. And more recently, it's been really cool to see that it, it's not just people don't just know their sun sign anymore, but now it's common for people to know their sun sign, their moon sign, and their rising sign. So they're yeah. big three. I think that's what most people call it. They're big three. Yeah, the three what, pillars, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so the moon's really important in astrology, and it always has been in different traditions. In modern times, one of the concepts that's been emphasized a lot, which is one of those concepts that's been popularized and almost has some. It's sort of like Mercury retrograde, where it's almost yeah. gotten some um, entrance or some penetration into like the public consciousness of like yeah. people knowing yeah. about it as a concept, even if they're not astrologers. Which and, is this concept of Saturn return? Yeah, so Saturn return, Mercury retrograde, and then like void of course Moon is one of those other things that's really been popularized in the past few decades. Yeah. So how do we define that, or what's 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 the starting point for what the modern definition of the void of course Moon is and what it's supposed to mean? Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me how it's how 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 do you define when the moon is void of course? Okay, so the way I've been doing uh, is always is is the method that I learned from good old Al Morrison, whoever he may have been, <laughs> which is that the moon has made its last Ptolemaic aspect to one of the planets before it changes signs, and you know from the time that it makes that last aspect to when it changes signs, it's void of course, and. What's done when the moon is void, of course, will bear no fruit. Um, you know, it's a time, I mean, in my parlance, it's very much a time to just be. It's a time uh, to, uh, you know, meditate and, you know, it's just a time to just not start new things. If you, I mean, in my case, you know, if I want to bury something, I would always think, well, let's start it when the moon is void, of course. And I have to say, after 20 years of working with this, I don't think it's let me down. So I'm really curious about how this system is so different to the original and, and what happened in the middle of all this. Sure. Um, so let's, let me, let me see, let's finish uh, just establishing like what the modern usage is first. So I've got a little diagram here that's not a great diagram, but it might suffice for our purposes of a little oh, void of course diagram that I made years ago. So imagine a chart where it has like cancer rising and Let's say that you have, for those just listening to the audio version of this, the moon is at 16 degrees of Aries. 
Mercury is at 15 Aries, the Sun at 21 Pisces, Venus at 10 Aquarius, Jupiter at 2 Taurus, Saturn at 4 Gemini, and Mars at 8 Virgo. Let's just say for the purpose of this that we're only looking at like the seven visible planets or the seven traditional planets, and we're only using the five so-called Ptolemaic aspects or major aspects, which are the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition. Yeah. So the moon in the modern definition that's been used in the past few decades is void of course as soon as it completes its last aspect that will go exact before it changes signs, I think is what you what you just said, right? Yeah. Okay. So if the moon's at 16 degrees of Aries in this chart, that means it just completed a conjunction with Mercury at yeah. 15 degrees of Aries. It recently completed a sextile with Venus from yeah. 10 degrees of Aries to 10 degrees of Aquarius. Yeah. So um, maybe sextile doesn't count. Yeah, so we're not using minor aspects like semi-sextiles or inconjuncts, just the major Ptolemaic aspects. And it looks like the next aspect it's going to make is a conjunction to Jupiter at two degrees of Taurus, but it's yes. only after it changes signs. Bearing in mind for anyone who doesn't know that each degree has thirty, th sorry, each sign has thirty degrees. Right. So what that means is that there's this span of of period of about fifteen, what fourteen degrees. Uh, when the moon is moving through after it completes that last aspect of conjunction with Mercury here, where it's not going to complete any other exact Ptolemaic aspects within the rest of that sign. And that's the period where the moon is said to be void of course. Yeah. Um, and, and there's different ways you could phrase that because the original Greek term was kenodromia, which means running in the void or running in the emptiness. So you can kind of see how the modern concept is still very much connected with that in that it's running in the emptiness because there's this this empty or this void span of time towards the end of the sign where the moon is not completing any exact aspects or relationships with any other planets, basically. Or is there? Well, yeah, we'll we'll get to that later. But but just in terms of um, most of the time when you mention the concept of void, of course, this is how it's understood by yeah, you know virtually all astrologers basically at this point in time that that this okay. is basically what it means right yeah i mean i didn't know if it was just me being ignorant actually no i mean it's a common it's also in calendars like i think in the llewellyn calendar yeah. it's marked in most astrological calendars it's marked so you had said in the, before we were in the pre-interview that you had originally learned this concept from i think you said debbie kempton smith and she Credited yeah. an earlier astrology named Al Morrison yeah. or Al, Al Morrison, right? Morrison, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and what was Debbie Kempton Smith's book again? Secrets from a Stargazer's Notebook. It's a great book for anyone who's just getting started. Okay. So, um, and in terms of void, of course, this is something that basically happens um, every few days, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, based on this, really. Pretty much, you know, barring the odd moment when you've got planets right at the 29th degree or at zero degrees, it pretty much goes void, of course, every single time it changes signs, you know? Right, towards Which the end means, of the sign. Yeah, and, and, and obviously when there's planets at the end of, you know, like Pluto's at the end of Capricorn, so we get less void, of course, time, you know, like per week, say, or per month at the moment, if you've got, you know, especially if you've got a couple at the end of various degrees of the different elements or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it means the moon goes void, of course, a lot. 
Right. So anytime it gets towards the end of the signs, um, because it's basically just whenever it completes its last aspect in a sign, then the rest of its period in that sign until it switches to the next sign, it's going to be void of chorus. That's right. So symbolically, we can see that it's something that's associated with, you know, um, having completed one aspect and not completing another until changing signs. And this notion of there being like endings because it's moving through the last part of the sign, or things that don't um, come about or aren't completed, aren't brought to completion in some way. Yeah, I think that's I mean, usually how it's interpreted, right? I think of it as uh, you know slightly untethered, as the moon is slightly untethered during that period after it makes the final aspect and before it makes the next aspect after changing signs. That's I think of it as the untethered moon. <laughs> it's a bit poetic. Okay. Um, so uh, and okay, so where do we go from here? I guess where we go is I have a question actually. Sure. No, no, where were you gonna go first? I was gonna go to I think one of the reasons why this is so popular isn't just the likes of Debbie Kempton Smith and Al Morrison. I think it's William Lilly. Because, you know, when you look at horary astrology, this is basically the definition of the void of course moon that Lily uses mostly, I think. You know, probably in Christian astrology there's a few, you know, variations because there's always variations to everything. But overall, in the practice of horary astrology, you know, if the moon is void, of course, nothing's going to happen. And generally, you know, if you're doing the sort of astrology, the horary astrology that John Frawley teaches, for example, you know, it's the moon goes void, of course, in this way. And after that, you're in, you know, in for nothing. And I just wonder if that's been one of the contributing factors to the rise and rise of this method, or if it fell out of favor for another reason. I mean, I, I'm really curious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something that's primarily been used for the past few centuries as something that's primarily applicable in either horary astrology questions or in electional astrology, where you're trying to pick an auspicious um, chart in order to launch a new venture. Where mo most of the time, ideally, you're trying to pick something that's going to indicate a successful outcome for you. And the void of course moon is traditionally something that's treated as a, a negative or problematic factor that will not indicate a very successful outcome because the moon's lack of completion of any aspects in the near future is then interpreted as meaning that um, nothing will happen or that the thing that was initiated at that time um, will not come to fruition and will not have a sort of successful outcome, basically, that yeah. no nothing will come of it. I, I do think you can flip that and, you know, say during this period, whatever you start will bear no fruit. Therefore, you know, I have been known to get up at two o'clock in the morning and take my tax return and post it when the moon went void, of course, at 2 a.m. because, you know, nothing will come of it. <laughs> yeah. Touchwood in theory. A, you know, like common... you can use it both ways. It doesn't have, I don't see it as a bad thing. I just see it as a thing where it's like, it's like the world just takes a break. Everything just takes a break. So don't start anything really important there because it's sort of like numinous time. That would be how I would see it. Right. I think that tax return example is a common one that astrologers use for the void of course moon, saying that they try to use that in their favor because they don't want anything significant to come from like the tax, you know. Exactly. Tax there you go. We're all we're all at up there at two o'clock in the morning posting our posting our things in the post box. So that being said, one of the reasons why we're doing this episode today, it was partially just due to circumstance, but also one of the things that's funny, actually, ironically, is 
We started it here with cancer rising in Denver, and the moon is actually, according to our definition that we're using, the modern definition of void of chorus is void of chorus. There, the ascendant just switched over into Leo. Um, let me back it up to where we started in cancer. So um, we have a nice little test of this today in terms of whether if it ever our, sees the light of day, <laughs> whether our interview comes to to nothing, um, we'll see. So the moon is at twenty six degrees of Gemini. It recently completed a trine with uh, Venus at twenty five degrees of of Aquarius, and it looks like the next aspect isn't going to be until it changes signs into Cancer, and then it will form a trine with the Sun at three degrees of Pisces, right? Yeah, but there is also, I think, within the void of course moon parameters as per the medieval slash Horry slash Al Morrison module, <laughs> is we didn't start this whole thing in when the moon was void of course. I would have I would have been I would have made sure that I did not send you the first email when the moon was void of course. So, you know, I do think that that's something people have to take into account, particularly because the moon goes void of course so often, because you just get to the point where you don't start anything. Um, so I, I, my feeling is that, um, had I sent the first email when the moon was void of course, then presumably we would never have got this far. Now, the fact that the moon is void of course is void of course now, in a way, I think, well, that's all right. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, so let's see. So the void of course moon, one of the things, so, so part of the reason this has come up lately, especially in the past 10 years, and one of the reasons I started researching the history of the void of course moon was back in the 2012 presidential election in the United States there yeah. was a lot of talk about how obama was given the nomination for his political party to run again for the presidency oh. in 2012 under a void of course moon the second and time but he you know he was sworn in the first time he took oath right. on the capitol steps when the moon was void of course yeah, back in two thousand nine, and when January he was first two. elected, yeah, and so, then what happened? You know what happened, don't you? He, well, that was tricky because Mercury was also retrograde that yeah. time as well, and, the, and there was. And what happened three hours later, after well, the moon was, was no longer there, void, of course. There was a misspeak where the Supreme right, Court Justice yeah. um, said the oath slightly wrong, and so yeah. they re retook it again, like a few hours later, or later that night, just in order to be extra cautious. Yeah, but I always thought like the whole of the astrology world was a Twitter with the fact that Barack Obama was being sworn in the first time when the moon was void, of course. And then what happened was, oh, he flubbed his lines. How very convenient, because then mm. three hours later he redid the, the pledge when the moon was no longer void, of course. And people, many people say that he had an astrologer um, because he always made decisions that vibe really well with the astrology, and he follows me on Twitter. <laughs> okay, well, that's actually yeah. kind of impressive. I, I mean, did not know he follows you on Twitter. If ever I heard it, I was a little skeptical <laughs> when you first started saying that, but I'm a little bit more intrigued now. But um, yeah. I, I was associated with that. And I thought he, most he astrologers... follows six hundred thousand people on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you're the primary one that he pays attention to, though. <laughs> um, but. I always associate that more with the Mercury retrograde uh, with the inauguration oh, no. thing. It was but, all but about the void, of course, moon for me. Sure, maybe, maybe, but let me say my point first, which is that okay. by 2012, a lot of astrologers were basing entire predictions on the fact that he accepted this party's nomination during a void, of course, moon. And a lot of people cited 
um, Debbie Kempton Smith's book, who said that for the last hundred years, anybody that's ever accepted their party's nomination under a void of course moon has gone on to lose the election. And mm-hmm. she cited Al Morrison for this claim. And so at the time I went back and researched this more, both Al Morrison as well as the Void of Course Moon. And it turned out that he was actually one of the primary modern astrologers who was responsible for popularizing the concept of the Void of Course Moon. And that he produced like an annual calendar that showed Void of Course Moon times. And he also made some very striking and I think honestly a little bit maybe not fully grounded claims about the void of course moon in terms of the political history of that because we don't really have one of the things i learned when i researched this was the claim that like anybody had that had been nominated under a void of course moon over the past century would not be elected president we don't have times for most of the when people were nominated because in the early 20th century that's something that used to be done Behind closed doors, and it's only in the past few decades that it's become a more public, televised right. process. Yeah. So I think Al Morrison was actually not being entirely truthful in his claim that anybody nominated under a void of course moon would always lose the presidency. Right. And I grew skeptical about it, and I started studying the history of the void of course moon and realizing that there were different definitions of what even constituted a void of course moon so that the traditional or ancient interpretation and definition of that may not have been the same as our modern interpretation and one of the points that's worth mentioning again real fast mentioning really quickly in connection with that is indeed anybody who predicted that obama would not be reelected based on the moon being void of course in 2012 when he accepted the nomination yeah. a few months later turned out to be wrong because he did yeah. in fact was reelected to the presidency so that did not turn out to be a sufficient condition to base the entire yeah. prediction on yeah which I wouldn't take that as enough to base that prediction on at all yeah I, mean, I don't I wasn't... think the nomination is you know I mean again going back to the point of when something starts I mean Yes and no. I don't. I don't. I mean, sometimes the moon will be void, of course, and in a process like that, that's probably got fifty different points where it where it begins. But you know, the last point is the inauguration. Yeah, there's a lot of things and a lot of different factors and things you can take into account that go into you know predicting an election and a lot of different variables. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, I guess I just bring that up as an example. Of how, in some instances, the notion I th- to me that was the high ro- high water mark of going too far okay. and too much hype being associated with the void of course moon, yeah. sort of in the same ways that sometimes astrologers, when a technique becomes popularized, like Mercury retrograde, for example, sometimes mm-hmm. people can take it too far and they can treat it as the end all be all of you know making predictions in astrology and, yeah. and indicate. The worst case scenario every time, but that's yeah. often not the case. And often things are much more nuanced and there's a lot more going on than just like one indication. Mm-hmm. So part of my work with the Void of Course Moon has been recognizing that there's different definitions and there's a lot of nuance and, and variation to it, so that it might be important to tone it down a little bit and at least not go that far and like basing everything off just that one consideration sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually. sure, and we could double check, but I'm pretty sure somebody said to me, actually, the moon was void, of course, at Obama's second inauguration as well. And they Mm. said that was why 
uh, you know, he didn't have enough, I'm not good at politics, but he didn't have enough people in the Senate or the Congress or whatever it is to pass all his bills, you know, in the second, you know, in his second term, he was quite, it was quite difficult for him to get his bills through, you know, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware. And um, and people put that down to the void, of course, Moon, that he that his presidency or the second term was very difficult because of that, and he didn't do his second flooding of his lines because that would have just been pushing that a little bit too far. <laughs> so, I mean, but I'm curious to ask you something, if I can just flip the tables on you for a minute. Hold on How- really quick, because there's a good way to wrap that section up, which is that you actually, part of your motivation for wanting to have this discussion recently is that this came up again with Biden, right? Okay, I can, I can say that now, but I'd also love yeah. to ask you... you something later. Okay, so true. Um, so moving on from Barack Obama, funnily enough, you know, because obviously the Barack Obama inaugurations and nominations got you interested in the the void of course moon situation, which is kind of fascinating because what got me interested in the Hellenistic void of course moon, the reason why I stumbled upon it, I, I actually knew about it because actually in my book Moonology, I had to do the three definitions of the void of course moon, but I knew that sort of the second one I gave was the one that everybody used. But when Biden was also now going to be sworn in under a void of course moon, which I didn't realize until about 24 hours before the inauguration, which really surprised me because normally I suppose I rely, oops, I rely on the chatter of astrologers to kind of, you know, bring these kinds of things to attention. And all of a sudden I was like, hang on a minute, I've just looked at the inauguration chart. The moon's void, of course. No one's like saying anything about this. And I was really panicked because I was uh, quite keen to see Biden sworn in, let's put it like that. And um, so it sent me off on this little bit of research, which, as I said, ended up with me seeing you talking about the Hellenistic void, of course, moon. So, I mean, I would be interested to know which which one you use? Do you do you use both? Do you use one? Do you use the other? Or you don't use either? So you're saying that Biden in his inauguration chart on January 20th, that it, the moon was void, of course, using that definition? Yeah, it was. Using okay. the medieval version, not not the Hellenistic one. Uh well, okay, we'll get we'll get into that because we haven't defined it, but that's what sparked your interest in in researching this topic and finding out more about the history. Yeah, because what happened was I saw you talking about this Hellenistic void, of course, moon, when the, the moon is only void, of course, according to the ancient 1,000-year-old Hellenistic definition, that it's only void, of course, when it doesn't make a Ptolemaic aspect for 30 degrees. And apart from the fact I found it really hard to visualize when the moon might not make a Ptolemaic aspect uh, for 30 degrees, um, I was just excited because I thought, okay, well, hang on a minute. Why do we chuck out this old version? Like, and that's what brought this whole thing up. Like, when did this become unfashionable? How can we all do this? What's going on? That's why I wanted to speak to you because I actually think you're probably one of the people best qualified in the whole world <laughs> to talk to. So that's, you know, tell us, Chris. <laughs> Sure. So, um, yeah. So I wrote. I mean, my primary. I've done a video on this, but I also my primary thing was an article I wrote for one of my websites, the Astrology Dictionary, where I went through um, and wrote an article talking about the different definitions of void, of course, and just trying to define the concept. Because one of the issues that I ran into is I found in the tradition at least um, three different versions. Possibly four versions, actually, of what it means for the moon to be void of course. So we, what we've just defined as the modern version that's been used for the past few decades, 
Um, but if you go back 2,000 years to the earliest definitions of void, of course, what's surprising and what surprised me and a number of other astrologers and translators over the past two or three decades since um, ancient texts started being translated from the Greek and Roman astrological traditions is that um, there's a book of definitions that's attributed to an astrologer from the first century named Antiochus of Athens. And he has this one concept that he defines called kenodromia, which is a very just literally, it means running in the void or running in the emptiness. And this is the exact ancient um, word that we get our modern term void, of course, from. But the problem is that when um, Antiochus defines this concept, he says that it occurs when the moon will not complete any exact major aspects within the next 30 degrees um, of its journey or of its course. So the next 30 degrees, and he doesn't say anything about sign boundaries also, it's not mentioned in the definition. So what that seems to mean, as long as we're interpreting this text correctly in every translator I've talked to seems to interpret it the same way, is that it literally just means um, that the moon originally, in its original definition, was thought to be void of course if it doesn't complete an exact aspect in the next yeah. 30 degrees regardless of sign boundary. And in some ways that makes more sense because if you think about it, it's all very easy for us to be working out when the moon is void of course every two and a bit days because we've got computers. But if you're an astrologer 2,000 years ago, it's quite a big deal to be working that out on a regular basis. You know, I, I think it makes more sense that they were a bit broader about it. But I, I find the whole thing fascinating. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I've been looking forward to talking to you about this because it's so strange to have something that's stated. I mean, you know, I mean, at the risk of sounding completely, uh, you know, unread, how seriously do we take his opinion? Uh, and did well, he invent the void, of course, moon, which then got changed? No, I mean, it seems because it's it's mentioned in Antiochus, and then it's mentioned in Porphyry, and then it's mentioned in a later Hellenistic astrologer named Rhetorius. So it seems to have been relatively consistent. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting and worth mentioning here is even though it's largely something that's used in a natal and electional or in an electional and a horary astrology context in the later right. traditions, like in the 20th century or even in the 17th century in William Lilly, in the definitions here in the Hellenistic tradition, they're primarily for natal astrology. And there's actually interpretations for what the void of course moon means in the fourth century astrologer Firmicus Maternus. Um, but they're entirely about what it means if a person has this in their birth chart. Uh, but it's something that's treated as very rare and something that's treated as very negative. And that's um, 500 years later as well. Yeah. I mean, Antiochus is the first century, and then Porphyry is the third century, and then Firmicus okay, so. is the fourth century. Yeah. So my point, though, is just that originally it was probably a natal astrology concept used in birth charts. It's something that only occurs once or twice a year. So it's a very rare right, right. thing for the moon not to complete any exact aspects in the next 30 degrees. And because mm -hmm. that's more than basically two days, that's basically two days of the moon not completing any aspects. And therefore, you can understand why it was called running in the emptiness or being void of course, having nothing in its path, because it's like a planet that has no relationships and will form no relationships with other planets. Because you have to remember that aspects were conceptualized as 
relationships and means for the planets to interact with each other. So what happens if the moon is void like that for 30 degrees is it's kind of like a an isolated or a lonely moon, you might say, yeah, um, that has nobody keeping it keeping it company, and therefore has no support and assistance from other planets or other people. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to find this list I made of people who's who have got the void, of course, moon using the medieval or modern definition. And I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm 99 percent sure William Winston Churchill, for example, has a void, of course, moon. You know, it's like well, you can't really say that guy's life amounted to nothing. Whatever you think of him, he he's a figure in history. So you know, that to me kind of leans towards okay well maybe the hellenistic definition shouldn't have been thrown out quite so easily you know and that's why i'm fascinated to know what happened to it well and i think that's one of the problems that's one of the issues that i have with um because i think al morrison did popularize it but sometimes some of the later modern astrologers they would go back and read astrologers like firmicus maternus from the 4th century when firmicus would define and give you interpretations of the void of course moon, except he actually doesn't say how to de- how to um, determine it or how it's defined. But he does have a chapter on just uh, just interpreting what it means in a birth chart, and he gives these extremely negative delineations of what it means. And then the modern astrologers who read that in the twentieth century thought those applied to the modern definition, which is uh, much less rare. Like mixing egg apples and oranges. Yeah, exactly. And I, so I think that's part of the problem is we have to be careful sometimes to make sure when we're looking at ancient texts that they're defining things in the same way that we are, because sometimes we can actually misinterpret and we can mix things up in, in a way that could be problematic. Totally. So I'm trying to flip through a translation of Firmicus really quickly to find his definition of void of course, because it's very, it's kind of over the top, honestly. And, um, but it gives you some context for how they defined it. So I just found it. So it's in Firmicus Maternus. This is the translation by Jean Rice Bram from like the 1970s. It's in um, Liber Cortis, chapter eight. It says, If the moon is moving towards nothing, if the moon is located that she is moving towards nothing, it is an aspect, it is in aspect to no planet, and there is no benefic planet on the angles. This will make paupers destitute of all necessities without means of daily life. They beg for a living and are always in need of a stranger's help to sustain life. They will always be inferior to their parents and their bodies sickly. They suffer from infected wounds and malign. He actually goes on. It's like very not. Right. Not very well, now nice. we have to look up Winston Churchill's chart and see if he had Jupiter on an angle because he certainly doesn't fit for that. Yeah, and thing. that's actually wish- a really important point. You noting that that he doesn't just say. Moon void of course, he says. If the moon is not void of course, and there's no benefic that is angular in the chart, so there's mitigating conditions to even his delineation here right from the start. And that's another interesting, consistent thing that I found in the history of the void of course moon as well. Is there can be mitigating um, conditions that you're supposed to take into account, and this is also true from some of the later definitions as well. All right. Well, let's have you, a look. I've got is, Winston Churchill's good, chart. Do we have a good birth time for him? Let's have a look what I've got here. I've got 1.30 a.m. Um, on astrotheme.com. Okay. Um, Astrotheme is not reliable, not but it look, looks like I have it as well, and it's like an A-rated chart what, from Churchill's what, what father to the astrologer John Addy. 
So that okay. seems Well, according okay. to this, he doesn't have – well, he might have Venus just about on his descendant. Oh, uh, we have an issue because his ascendant's really late. Um, that's more Leo? of an issue for that's more of an issue for me because I use whole sign houses than it is for you. But his ascendant. No, I use I actually use whole sign houses. Just this chart isn't whole sign house, so let's have a look. Okay, so here's the chart. Um, it has twenty nine fifty six Virgo rising with a one thirty a.m. birth time from eighteen seventy four. So honestly, it could be either Virgo rising or Libra rising. We don't really know, but. It's actually really interesting that in this chart, this would be, if we took the Virgo rising chart, it would be a night chart with Venus angular in the fourth whole sign house at 22 degrees of Sagittarius. Ah, so it is, yes. Not too far from the degree of the IC at 29 mm. degrees of Sagittarius. So even in the quadrant, it's getting I have close to find there. my list of people born with the void of course moon because I've got so, an extensive list of it. Okay. So this would be void according to the, the modern definition. Is that what you're saying? Um. Well, yes, it would be. It's twenty nine degrees. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it were, you weren't using yeah, this no. as an example of the Hellenistic definition, though, right? No, I was using this as an example of the. Oh, there we are. Oh no. Um. Oh, I don't seem to have it. It's really annoying. Um. No, I was using it as an example of void of course in the um medieval. Version. But again, I suppose we're mixing apples with oranges because the whole yeah. thing about the benefic on an angle is from the Hellenistic, is it? Or is it from the. Oh, yeah, that's from, from Firmicus, from the Hellenistic tradition. Yeah, from the Hellenistic, so, yeah. But that's a good, um, you know, just example in terms of reading from Firmicus and noting right away that there was their exception. So he says, yeah. if the moon's void, of course, and there's no angular benefic, because if there's an angular benefic, that's going to co contradict some of those indications very strongly. Um, let me see if there's anything else that Firmicus says that's relevant and not super depressing. So, yeah. What about if it's in Taurus or Cancer? That's a medieval mitigating factor, and we can get to that in a second. Okay. So, attack their joints. Okay. He says they suffer from infected wounds or malignant humors under okay, the skin. Okay, let's not freak people out. <laughs> I'm not trying to freak them out. I'm just it's Firmicus, and he's very over the top. But he does yeah, say, "Yeah, so don't freak out." Especially if the moon running through is running through the vacuum, which the Greeks call kenodromia, um, if it is in opposition or square aspect to Mars or Saturn on the first or third day, or if malefic planets are on the angles. So he gives another mitigating condition for if there's malefics that are angular and the moon is void, of course, then it can be more problematic. Um. He does give. He goes on and gives some other mitigations, like if the moon is aspected by benefics and other conditions. But anyway, the point of that was just he's delineating that originally within the context of a natal delineation of a birth chart of something that only occurs very infrequently, and that's one of the reasons why it was considered to be something worth noting because. I think I, th I only saw the moon go void, of course, according to that definition. I think the people from the Honeycomb Collective Astrological Planner found one instance of it that happened last August, in August of 2020. But I think that was the the only one for that entire year. Yeah, there's if I actually. Correctly. Unfortunately, I don't have it um, on me, and I know I told someone about it. Someone someone wrote to me. There is a um, Hellenistic void of course moon calculator on the internet, and uh, I looked at a few years, and it seems to happen. I would say, like for memory, it was up to seven times a year, but some years just had once or twice. Um, so just to 
really get things clear in my head here. So according to the Hellenistic version, it's if the moon doesn't make another aspect, uh, an aspect to a planet in the next 30 degrees, unless there's a benefic on one of the angles. Well, let's just in say- a, in, a, in a natal chart. Let's let's leave the other mitigating conditions out because that's more just like stuff that will make it better, even though it's still theoretically pretty bad. But let's just define it as the moon is void of course if it doesn't complete any aspects in the next thirty degrees, regardless right. of sign boundary, and that's it. Um, and if you have that, then the moon is void of course, and there can be things yeah. that can make it better because it's not the end of the world, and there's other mitigating factors. But for our purposes, it's that. So the site you mentioned, I think that's AstroSeek dot com or yeah astro.seek.com which is a really amazing website that's been really uh really just kind of killing it over the past few years in terms of integrating a lot of great new techniques both modern and ancient and making like calculation services for them so i just found the hellenistic calculator that you mentioned on their website so, i forgot that they had programmed this yeah what is it again so here it the is URL? it's astro yeah that's the one Oh, like mooncalendar.astro, because I would have it in my um, my memories, my computer memory. There it is. Yeah, so, yep. so okay, mooncalendar.astro-seek.com. Yep. So it has um, yep. different options. So we're going to do traditional seven planets, aspects, main aspects. Uh, I should actually have him change that to major it's aspects. It's actually a brilliant thing to have this. I mean, you know, yeah. Solify um, doesn't have this. They should put this in there. No, I mean, and that's what's really great about Peter's website is he's been really responsive and in integrating new things like this as they come out. Yeah. He also did like a perfections module and a zodiac releasing right, thing, yeah. and he has a lot calculator and a lot of stuff. So yeah. under void of course method, he defines the different ones, and he has a Hellenistic one, which is a 30-degree orb for the moon. He yeah. says happens very rare, a few times a year. So if you click that, um, under 2021, it looks like there's just two that happen. So there's one on October second. I think I think that's it actually. I think it goes void of course and then it stops being void of course on the fifth. So oh it stops on the fifth. Okay, that makes sense. So it's just one time in this entire year. Yeah. And that the moon will be void of course from twenty five degrees of Leo to twenty seven degrees of Virgo, which yeah. is a really long span of time. And you can see yeah. why that because usually there's other planets in different positions that the moon will yeah. hit an aspect with at some point. Until um, I saw this website, I just couldn't believe it ever happened. I was like, how can this ever happen? And then I see, okay, it does actually happen. Yeah, and here's the one for 2020. So it was from August 29th to September 1st. Yeah. And the moon's last aspect, I guess, was a square to Mars. And then the next yeah. aspect was so a sextile to Mars. The mystery to me here, Chris, is that how is it? I mean, like I, I said to you before, I'm not, I was never a history buff. I didn't mm -hmm. used to be. And then suddenly something changed for me. I mean, I lived in Paris for a few years and I was surrounded by this history and I was never interested. So I went to all the modern exhibitions and all that. I just wasn't. And all of a sudden I was. And now I think, okay, like this is queer, strange, like doesn't make any sense whatsoever that um, this, Thing has just been thrown out and it's been completely replaced by something completely different. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, how does this even happen? <laughs> how um, do we get to I the mean, bottom of it? Well, part of it is just that you have to realize that the history of astrology is extremely long. Like we're talking about 2000 years ago. So we're talking about generations and generations of astrologers ago. And one of the things you have to realize is that the history and transmission of astrology over the past 2000 years 
even though it's relatively easy for us to transmit information today through like the internet or through books or blogs or podcasts or YouTube or what have you, um, it, they didn't have that like 2,000 years ago. But instead, for most of the astrological tradition, in order to pass on teachings, you either had to pass them on verbally from teacher to student through like an oral transmission or teaching, or most more commonly, you had to pass them on through books. And copying a book um, in the ancient world, you actually had to like get the book and then yeah. have a scribe sit down literally write it. and literally like copy the text over, and that's how a book was copied. Now, this was also complicated by the fact that over the past 2,000 years, um, it hasn't just been one singular language and one singular culture that's been practicing astrology all along, but instead we've had many different cultures that have practiced astrology and many different empires that have risen and then fallen during that time. And then astrology has been transmitted from one culture to another and translated from one language to another. And sometimes when you translate astrology from one language to another, um, the transmission is not always perfect. Sometimes translation, you can misinterpret things or Sometimes when you're translating an old text, it can be hard to understand exactly what they mean, and you might misinterpret what they mean and come up with an entirely different definition of something based on your misinterpretation. So there's a lot of different instances where sometimes that happens. There's other instances where astrology has changed or there's been new new techniques introduced or even new planets introduced over the past 2,000 years, and sometimes that causes changes and innovations in the system that are more deliberate, but nonetheless, they still cause shifts in how things are interpreted. So yeah. that's part I mean, of the that's background true. of that. And that does, because if you think about it with Pluto, say, for example, as a you know, very modern and modern planet, relatively speaking, you know, I guess back in the day before Pluto was discovered, it was much easier for a planet to go 30 degrees without um, making an aspect or before, you know, all the all that, you know, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto were discovered, I guess if you didn't know they were there, then you wouldn't know that the moon was making an aspect to them. And you would consider that it was much, I suppose it was much more common. Uh, and, and, you know, at the same time, I would ask you as a Hellenistic astrologer or someone who knows a lot about it, you know, I mean, if we are to use the um, Hellenistic void of course moon definition, do we have to take uh, Uranus, Neptune and Saturn out of the picture? Because, you know, if the moon, you probably you can't use the Hellenistic version and Pluto. Mm, you know, right. Like one yeah. has to cancel the other out. I mean, I think there is something to be said for a distinction or drawing some sort of distinction between the seven visible traditional planetary bodies that you can see with the naked eye versus the three outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, which are, are typically invisible to the naked eye, and that in most forms of divination, what a person can see with the visible eye and what you can actually observe, that there is a difference there, a conceptual and interpretive difference between that versus that which you can't see or, or what's obscured in some way. So there might be a good reason why you might want to draw a distinction between using this within the context of the traditional planets versus incorporating the outer planets, because you also would have to draw a line between you know, if you're going to incorporate the outer planets, are you also going to incorporate minor planetary bodies like Ceres or Vesta or Pallas or other asteroids or other things like that? I mean, I think if you're going to use the Hellenistic definition, which I'm quite drawn to, 
just because it was the first one. And I, you know, that's, I mean, you're the person who convinced me to use whole sign houses because you gave that brilliant argument. And also because Robert Hand told me to use them as well um, at an astrology conference. Um, you know, if you're going to use the Hellenistic Void of Course Moon, you cannot use the planets that were discovered after the telescope because it just doesn't make sense. Like, it's too different. So, and that presents me with a problem because I do consider myself a modern astrologer. And when John Frawley tried to convince me to deselect all the modern planets off my solar fire, I said no. And I still say no because they are there and we know they're there. But then if you're going to use the Hellenistic version, I think you do then have to say, except we can't count them then. And I just feel like the modern definition or the, you know, the Al Morrison definition, let's call it the medieval version, I feel like that's kind of been made up. And that disturbs me. <laughs> well, let's get into that because that'll get us to our second and third definitions of void, of course, okay. which we haven't introduced yet. So let's see, where do we start here? So going back to my article where I defined the different um, versions of void, of course, I started with the Hellenistic definition and that one was used for all the way through the, at least the 7th century CE, just the Hellenistic version of until the seventh century. Okay, interesting. Yeah, until about oh, the seventh no, century, because Rhetorius mentions it in the sixth or seventh century. So it still exists then, basically towards the end of the Greek tradition, where astrology astrologers were primarily writing in Greek and sometimes Latin, but basically during the Roman Empire. But by the time of Rhetorius, the Roman Empire is in full decline and. Astrology is not being practiced as much in Europe and in the Roman Empire in general at that point. But instead, we have around the seventh and eighth century, we have the advent of the um, Islamic Empire, and the capital at one point gets moved to uh, Baghdad. And the rulers at the time, the caliph at the time, um, got together a group of astrologers and they said, We want to found a new capital in this city that will be called Baghdad. Pick us. An auspicious astrological chart for founding the city, and they right. did. And, and when chart, was this? Sorry, um, around about. Up, let me pull up the chart because we actually have the chart survives oh, right. okay. from an Arabic writing historian named Al Biruni. Um, okay. Actually, preserves the chart for us, so it looked a little bit like this. Um, so it's set for July thirty first, seven sixty two CE. Around 2 p.m. in Baghdad, modern day Baghdad, Iraq. So it has Sagittarius rising with Jupiter in Sagittarius in the first house in a day chart. The sun is up at 10 degrees of Leo in the ninth whole sign house, which is probably important and somewhat deliberate. Um, the moon is somewhere in Libra, although it's a little bit tricky because. How we how we calculate the chart here, theirs may have been slightly different in terms of the astronomical methods that they were using at the time. Right. Um, but but I do think that they were trying to put the moon in Libra, where it actually would have been exchanging signs or in a mutual reception with Venus, which is in Cancer. Um, yeah. Although it's it's interesting that again, just connected with our topic, the moon actually does, according to the modern definition, void would be void, void of course. Here it's at twenty seven <laughs> degrees of Libra. What are the chances? Yeah. So, but Baghdad did pretty well for the first few centuries, and and Jeez. after this foundation, it became like a center for not just the entire empire, but also for learning and commerce and yeah. philosophy and even Cradle astrology. Civilization. Yeah. So, and and even for astrology, 
So um, that's the chart for Baghdad. Where was I going with that? So the the focus shifts to a bunch of the Arabic astrologers started translating texts from Greek and Latin and Sanskrit into Arabic. And at some point during this tradition or during some of the subsequent ones, because eventually after a few centuries, astrology was transmitted back to Europe where the Europeans started translating text from Arabic into Latin. And that's how Europe, how astrology came back into Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire in like the 12th century. Okay. So somewhere around this time, we get this new definition of void of course that we start seeing in different authors in the medieval, in the early and late medieval astrological traditions. So from about the 8th century CE. Yeah, from the, let's say the 8th century through the 12th century. Okay, amazing. Yeah, I'm looking to see if I have a book here. I may not have it in this room by my friend Benjamin Dykes where he actually takes the definition, but um, go ahead and talk or say something and let me see if I can find this on <laughs> my right. computer really okay. quick. Well, I think the first thing I'm going to say is like, I'm- Do you have questions uh, about the historical part? Yeah. I mean, I, I find it absolutely fascinating to talk to you about this because- I've, I, you know, the, the history of astrology just blows me away. And to think it was eighth century that this void, of course, moon, uh, new definition came in. I mean, for one thing, it's such a long time after the first definition that you've told us about. Um, I mean, we're looking at eight, nine hundred years of the first definition, really, aren't we? Um, yeah. So, and one of the things that's important that is maybe worth mentioning here is. There was a new development in the history of astrology that started happening between those times, between the late Hellenistic tradition and the early medieval tradition in Arabic, which is the introduction or at least the full-fledged um, starting to practice horary astrology questions, yes, which, which is, became the fourth branch of astrology. So earlier in the Hellenistic tradition, they primarily had three branches, which was mundane astrology, natal astrology, and electional astrology. Right. But slowly in the Hellenistic tradition, there was this new practice that grew out of electional and eventually became a full-fledged fourth branch in the medieval tradition where a client could approach an astrologer and ask a single specific question, and the astrologer would cast a chart for the moment they received the question and then attempt to answer the question just based on the chart for that moment. And that's what's known as horary astrology today. So that type of astrology, really the first full text book on horary astrology uh, wasn't written until around 775. So some of the texts by astrologers like Theophilus of Edessa, Masha Allah, and Saul bin Bishr are some of the earliest complete works on horary that survive, and they're all writing around the year 775 or 800 or so. Okay. So that's important because- That is important. In horary astrology, like how, how familiar are you with horary? I mean, fairly, fairly. So, so the I primary. I mean, fairly. I know how horary astrology works. I don't. I'm not. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs. Sure, but so the basic premise, though, of answering most horary questions, which I think grew out of the the Persian tradition as well as the early Arabic tradition in the sixth and seventh and eighth centuries, is that what you do is the astrologer casts the chart for when they received the question, and then they have to identify. They always as associate the first house with the querent or the Quirant, person who yeah. asked the question, and usually the planet that rules the first house or rules the ascendant, the rising sign, 
that planet is thought to represent that person in the chart, right? Yeah. So then the other thing the astrologer has to do is they have to identify um, what house matches the topic of the question. Yeah. So if the querent is asking about, if the client is asking about relationships, yeah. then they'll usually the look to this, house. like the seventh yeah. house. If they're asking about like their their parents or their home, they might look to the fourth house. If they're asking about their career or something, they might look to the tenth house. And then yeah. what they do is they find the ruler of that house. So let's say it's a relationship question. So they look to the seventh house. They would then identify what planet is the ruler of the seventh house. And they would see if that planet is forming an aspect with the ruler of the ascendant. Querent. And it, yeah. So, and if those two planets are forming an aspect that's still applying, then oftentimes the answer will be affirmative or the answer will be yes. Whereas yeah. if they're not applying to an aspect or if they're separating or just not aspecting, aspecting at all, then the answer is, is negative or is a no, right? Yeah. And I mean, just for anybody who's listening, I think it's really interesting that. One of the reasons why, as I understand it, Hori um, grew was because back in the day, back in 700, the year 700 and whatever, when it was starting, when you're talking about, um, the average person didn't know when they were born, let, you know, what date, let alone what time. I think you had to be a king or a queen to have that kind of um, information recorded. So I think that's one of the reasons why it grew up, wasn't it? Because then it was just I, the, the moment the question is asked and understood and uh, and then you look at the chart. I mean, I like that idea because I'm I'm quite a cosmic person, and I I've always felt in astrology there's no such thing as a bad chart. So to me, horror astrology works. But is that when we saw the change then beginning? Because maybe it suited the horror astrology to have a different definition of void, of course, moon. <laughs> exactly, and I think that's part of what starts happening at this point is because of that new approach to horary and horary becoming becoming much more popular. Um, that there were also some technical, some new techniques and new concepts that were introduced in order to be able to answer horary questions. Because if yeah. you're using that approach where it's only if two planets are directly applying to an aspect and those happen to be the rulers of the two houses that you're yeah. that match the question in the chart, then that's kind of rare that that happens. So they had to introduce a few additional concepts at this time in order to make other situations where those two planets could connect. Yeah. Even if they weren't doing so directly, so at this yeah. time we see the introduction of concepts like transfer of light, yeah. which is where you have two planets that are not aspecting each other or that are separating. But if you have a third planet like the Moon or Mercury that's yeah. really fast and it swoops in and it separates from one planet and applies to another, then it can um, connect the two of them yeah. or. or Transfer yeah. the light, as it's called, right? Yeah, and and if the ascendant is too early or too late as well, they introduced, didn't they? Yeah. So maybe also, they just wanted to come up with a whole lot of different kind of mitigating factors. Yeah, and <laughs> and there's a lot of little factors like that that then came about, and either were you know deliberately invented or that were discovered. I don't really know, but I think it was possibly connected with horary, which is much the rise more dynamic. And rise of horary, yeah. Yeah, which is a much more dynamic use of horary, where this notion of like application and separation, and what is this? What are the significators doing? Becomes very important, and especially yeah. the moon in horary is always treated as a secondary significator for yeah. the question or for the querent, and is so if, vital in um, electional astrology. Yeah, exactly. So if the moon yeah. is not in good shape, according to there's many different con conditions where the moon can be in good shape or bad shape, then 
That's very important in either your Hori question or in your electional chart. Yeah. So let me read you some definitions of void, of course, that come from the medieval tradition from like the eighth okay. and ninth century. And who they're from. Yeah. So this is from a book by my friend Benjamin Dykes, where he translated a bunch of medieval texts a few years ago. And this book is titled Introductions to Traditional Astrology, um, Abu Mashar and Al Kabisi. Okay. So here is the and I don't have like the PDF. I have like a like a pre-publication version just on my computer that I was proofreading. So this may not be the final translation, but it's close enough. So it says, um, emptiness of course. So this is from like book three or section three, definition nine. The Arabic Ben says is emptiness of course. And other later translators translated it as solitude or void in course and so on and so forth. So according to the abbreviation of the introduction to astrology by Abu Mashar, it says, solitude is if, a little after disregard, some star attaches to it in none of the above stated ways, but neither does it attach to any star while it is in that sign. So that's a little complicated because it's like taking into account other definitions such as disregard that it's already defined, but Let's read the next one. This is from Abu Mashar's Greater Introduction. It says, The emptying of the course is if a planet would be separated from the conjunction of another planet by bodily conjunction or by aspect, and it would not be joined to another so long as it were in that same sign. Or a definition from Al-Kabizi. It says, And if one planet is being disregarded by another, and it is being connected to none of the planets so long as it is in the same sign, its course is said to be empty. And finally, from the Book of Nine Judgments, I think this is what this is, or Nine Judges, unless this is from Algabizi, I'm actually not sure, but it says, if the moon were void in course, it signifies futility and annulment and turning back from that same purpose and the impediment of that same purpose. And Ben has a little definition or a little diagram here, and he goes on to like explicate the concept. So what's interesting here is in the Abu Mashar definition, we're seeing the introduction of something that's new, which is he has this statement, um, so long as it were in the same sign. So he says, when a planet is separated from the conjunction of another planet, either bodily conjunction, which is what we consider to be a conjunction today, or by aspect, and what it means by that is by the other aspects, which are sextile, square, trine, or opposition, and it would not be joined to another planet so long as it yeah. were in the same sign. Okay. So here we're starting to see a different different definition coming along. And when along. was he writing? Um, Abu Mashar was in the the ninth century, so ninth let's say century. around the year okay. eight fifty or something CE. Okay. So. He doesn't specify. So any, he's the, he's the culprit, by maybe, the sounds yeah. of it. Because maybe, the other, although, yeah, I, I was just going to say because the other thing that I keep thinking as we're talking is, you know, nowadays people don't just talk about the moon being void. Of course, you know, people will say, you know, the sun goes, well, not the sun really, but you know, Venus goes void. Of course, or you know. Um, Planets are said to some people talk about planets being void, of course. I mean, I don't know how unorthodox that is, but they're definitely say using this same definition as well. You know, so 
then you sort of think, okay, well, when did that start? And, you know, how's this all grown up? Because I, I feel like we should stick with the original, quite frankly. <laughs> well, that's that's a really good point, though, is that you're making here, because one of the things we can note about this definition is that it does actually, it doesn't restrict it to the moon um, in Abu Mashar's definition. It just says yes. um, if one planet, if a planet is separated from the conjunction of another planet, yeah, and then and the moon it is isn't not even joined. a planet. Well, it's just that it means that it's not just restricted to the moon in this case, even mm. though the original definition and the Hellenistic tradition seem to be just about the moon. They've yeah. actually made it wider so that it's talking about any planet. Yeah. And any planet, as long as it's not applying to another planet, will not complete that aspect um, before it changes sign. So Maybe that's also again due to horary because it has to do with the horary significators and what they're going to yeah, do maybe, and how yeah. that describes the outcome of the question. I don't think horary takes into account a planet being void, of course, though, does it? Well, I suppose it does in terms of the fact that if it's a significator, it's not applying to the, you know, the object. I suppose it does in a well. I mean, it does and it doesn't. It does, but not specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's relevant. It's not the most common thing, but if the planet, yeah. which is one of your important significators, if they're, if it's towards the end of the sign and it's not applying to any yeah. other planet, then yeah. that may tell you something about, yeah. you know, let's say if you're ask if somebody's asking if their person they're interested in if they're going to get married or something like that, yeah. and the significator of the other party is is it's like void of course, void of course, then yeah. that's the not going to be no. a great. Indication yeah. that you guys yeah, are sure. getting together in the future because the planets mm. themselves are not moving towards each other, and one of them mm. is just completely out to lunch and wandering around on its own. So perhaps that rep represents a sort of wandering or yeah. isolation on the part of that person. But you were saying that the Hellenistic astrologers who were first talking about the moon being void, of course, in using the traditional or original definition. They were applying it to natal charts, and right. now we're talking about it being taken from natal charts into something which didn't even exist in at the start of things. Horary, which was in you know introduced, I suppose. So again, yeah. I think we're mixing apples with oranges. <laughs> I do. I mean, but, I mean, it doesn't doesn't leave me any clearer in a way. But at least I'm understanding the timeline. I mean, that being said, I mean they may have used it in electional chart charts. There's a few surviving election. Like works okay. on electional astrology, like Dorotheus of Sidon from the first century, or Hephaestus of Thebes okay. from the fifth century. I can't remember. I think Hephaestus might mention void, of course, as an electional condition at one point. But that being okay. said, it's like it's mainly used in an, in an, uh, a natal context, like we saw in Firmicus Maternus. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I do think it's important. The other thing that's a difference is that in the Hellenistic tradition, they were using both sign-based aspects and degree-based aspects. But in the medieval tradition, due to the shift towards horary, there was a shift more towards just using degree-based aspects rather than, in addition, using aspects by sign. So I think that's also a relevant consideration here because the definition of void of course also becomes more dynamic and becomes more focused on you know, just very close degree-based aspects at this point. It becomes based on not making a, an aspect before leaving the sign. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, you know, at that point we could stop because we think, okay, here it is, the definition of void, of course, it's introduced in the medieval period. We we see it here in Abu Mashar. Um, 
And then that definition more or less gets repeated by later authors such as Guido Bonatti and um, William Lilly in the 17th century. Who, who really wrote, takes it to town, I suppose, because he could print his book. Well, he, he was important. Lilly was important because he was the first major astrologer that wrote a major textbook on astrology in English. And up to that point, the astrologers tended to write their books in like Latin, basically, because Latin was the educated language in Europe at the time that like scientific and philosophical works were written in. So Lilly wanted his text to be more accessible, so he wrote it in English, and a lot of astrologers followed suit shortly after Lilly did that. But Lilly has a definition of void, of course, in his book Christian Astrology that then has pretty much influenced all subsequent traditions of understanding void, of course, in in the rest of like the English tradition at this point. Yeah. Um, you don't happen to have a copy of Lily lying around, do you? I do not have a copy of Lily in this house, actually. It's in storage. You don't just have like 17th century text no, lying but I around. Might, I might okay. have it on a PDF. Hang on. I mean, it's it, it is on PDF. Okay. Well, I actually do have a copy of Lily lying <laughs> around right behind me. So Here I'm going to very quickly flip to his definition of void, of course. Okay. I can't unfortunately put it up on the screen, but I can at least read it for us. Unless you find if you find a PDF, that would be great. I know his definition I have found of it. I found void of course is somewhere in the first book. Okay. Because he defines here. a bunch of terms and concepts. Yeah. It's all public domain now for poor old Mr. Willy, Mr. Lily. Yeah. The copyright <laughs> ran out like a few, yeah. a few, <laughs> a few, few centuries ago. ago. Exactly. Um, no, it's not. It's not going to be easy to search because it's kind of a picture. It's, uh, oh, it's, it's not text. A, it's a, a scan like a, of it. Okay. Yeah, um, he deals with the moon. This is funny that we're doing all this on the fly here with this episode, but that's fine. This I mean, we fun. we pretty much know what his definition is anyway. I mean, I suppose it's nice to hear it. From the well, horse's it's mouth. A, it's important because there's been a reinterpretation of Lily that's that's led to a brand new definition. Okay. And so we have to be aware of that because now it turns out that there's other astrologers who define it differently in the modern period, and that's starting to cause some different. Yeah. You see, I'm anti all this sort of just let's all just decide how we want it to be. I think we have to go. The, the last question today, Chris, which we will get to, but is going to be, are we going to try and resurrect the original void, of course, moon definitions? And I think I can tell you right here and now my answer is yes, I'm mm. all for it. But let's see what Lily says when he decides to weigh in however many hundreds of years later. Yeah, I mean, my I'll get to mine later, but my part of my thing is I think when it comes to things like this, that all of these considerations are relevant and have something important to say from a symbolic standpoint. Um, so that's one of the things that's useful, though, about understanding the distinction between them. Um, so any any luck? I found the consideration no. before judgment where he oh, defines yeah, it, what it – oh, here it is, word, of course. Yeah. Okay, it's, so it's on page – I'm reading the Acela edition of – Lily, which is my favorite edition, which I'm sad is out of print because it seems like the best one, but it's on page 54 of the Acel edition, okay. which is around yeah. page 112 of Lily's actual text. It says, void of course. A planet is void of course when he is separated from a planet 
nor doth forthwith remember this is the 17th century yeah nor doth forthwith during his being in that sign apply to any other this is most usually in the moon in judgments do you carefully observe whether she be void of course yea or no you shall seldom see a business go handsomely forward when she is so hmm. okay so, so it's that's very his- much about horary not about natal just for the yeah, record. I mean, it's very much because Lily, um, book one of Lily is like introductory concepts, and then right away in book two, he jumps right into horary astrology. Yeah. Um, so horary was for Lily his primary practice. Thing, um, yeah. He does do he does introduce natal astrology in book three, but it's not as thorough as a treatment as his treatment of horary is. And one of the reasons people really love Lily's work. Is that he uses a bunch of example charts of real life horary questions to demonstrate how things worked out and what the interpretation of the chart was. So later on page like 122 of Lily, he have he has different considerations before judgment, which are different like horary considerations that you're supposed to take, take into account before judging a horary chart or before interpreting yeah. one. One of the ones that he says is he gives a few conditions of the moon. Um one of the ones he says is he says it's not safe to judge when the moon is in the later degrees of a sign, especially in Gemini, Scorpio, or Capricorn. Um, and then he goes on, he mentions the Via Combusta. Then he says, all matter of matters go hardly on, except the principal significators be very strong, except if they're very strong, when the moon is void of course. Yet somewhat she performs if void of course. And be in either Taurus, Cancer, Sagittarius, or Pisces. So basically, he reiterates the void of course thing. He says in interpretation that if you get a horary chart where the moon is void of course, a horary question, he says all matters go, all manner of matters go hardly on. Um, but then he gives an exception and he says, Exceptive. unless the moon is in the sign of its exaltation, which is Taurus. Sign of its domicile, which is Cancer, or in one of the signs ruled by Jupiter, which is Sagittarius or Pisces. So, and is that that's purely because Jupiter's lucky? Yeah, Jupiter's the greater benefic planet. Okay, presumably. I mean, I don't know if this is. I, I think this no, is because I when, he, when you said that, I was thinking, okay, but why, why uh, Pisces and um, Sagittarius? I didn't think. Of course, they're both ruled by Jupiter traditionally. Well, well, and additionally, the other mitigation he said is. He said, matters go hardly on unless the principal significators be very strong. Yeah. So he's saying there's some instances where the moon can be void of course, but the quarry question can still be positive if yeah. other factors in the chart are yeah. strong. Like if the sun's sextiling Venus or something. Yeah, like if yeah, the, two, so the significator and all that. The yeah. significators are dignified, or yeah. alternatively, if the moon herself is dignified. That that can nullify or counteract the void of course placement if the moon mm. is in Taurus, Cancer, Sagittarius, or Pisces. Mm. So this is important because you know since this is the first English version of void of course, this version mm. gets repeated by yeah. astrologers for the next two or three centuries, and I think eventually yeah. becomes kind of the basis for Al Morrison's in a sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, he's pe- definitely gone from that. Yeah. So one of the things though that's 
unfortunate is is typically those mitigating conditions aren't taken into account yeah, where true. for example that being an exception in those four signs and that became relevant because i remember um one of the, some of the research i did is going back to 2004 the 2004 united states presidential election when um john kerry was nominated for the democrats the moon was void of course but if i'm remembering correctly it was void of course in Sagittarius or something like that. So there was okay. a mitigation, or there was one of these nominations not too long yeah. ago. Maybe maybe that was the one for George Bush, actually, where it was like void of course, but there was a mitigation like that. Right. And I know yeah. I noticed that people weren't taking into account mitigations. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so we had to read Lily's definition because just from a basic reading of that, it seems as if you know, that's just following the earlier medieval definition of void of course, mm. which seems very similar to the modern definition, right? Yeah, it does. It seems almost exactly the same, apart from that nobody takes into the into account the mitigations. Okay, so the problem. And I don't think the, they're mentioned by Al Morrison either, frankly. But I don't know. I only know what I know about him from Kim Kim Debbie Kempton Smith. Right. So the problem is that um, there's another definition that's come about that I tried to document as interpretation or version three of the concept of void of course in my article, which is that there's been some alternative interpretation of Lilly's definition of void of course and what he meant yeah. by that um, in the 1980s and 1990s. In particular, there was this 1995 article titled The Considerations Before Judgment by the astrologer Sue Ward where she argued that Lily's definition of void, of course, had been misunderstood and provided an alternative um, interpretation that was quite different than what the modern astrologers had been using or how people had understood that definition up to that point. So, um, basically, yeah, I, I have—I actually have this definition in my in my book, Moonology. Um, Strangely, I think that I've got it. I must have got it from you. But the moon is not making an exact aspect within ten degree orb. But a lot of people don't know about that because I've run that past other astrologers and they've gone, "Huh? Never heard that one." Yeah. So let me here. Let me read my just because I'm trying to remember exactly how it went. But my summary of this and of Sue's argument was that um, even though Lily is usually used as the primary source of the modern definition of void, of course, where a planet is void when it will complete no other aspects until it moves into the next sign, um, Sue Ward argued that Lily's actual working definition in chart examples was that a planet is only void, of course, when it is not applying to an aspect with another planet within orb, regardless of sign boundaries. Hmm. So, um, I go on and I say this interpretation of Lily's definition of void, of course, is similar to the original Hellenistic def definition in that it ignores sign boundaries, although it happens much more frequently than the Hellenistic definition because Lily's orb for applying aspects tends to be less than 10 degrees. Um, unfortunately, since this interpretation of Lily's definition of void, of course, is largely based on references made or inferences made from his chart examples, it's somewhat controversial. Some astrologers agree that this is the correct interpretation of what Lily meant, and thus that there is a third in, third definition of void of course, while others do not agree that this is the correct interpretation of the text, and thus they believe that there are only two potential definitions, which is the Hellenistic and the modern one. So maybe we should give an example. Let me see if I have a diagram that shows um, yeah, here's one so that I made that shows this definition. If this interpretation of Lily is correct, where 
let's imagine that the moon is at, you have a chart where the moon is at 10 degrees of Aries, and it's just completed a sextile with Venus at 10 degrees of Aquarius. And the next aspect that the moon is going to make is not until it reaches a conjunction with Jupiter at 29 degrees of Aries at the very end of that sign. So this is something like 18 or 19 degrees away before the moon will conjoin Jupiter, which is well outside of any sort of standard orb for a conjunction or other major aspect, which usually tends to be like 10 degrees or less. So the the point is that the moon would be void of course then during the range in which it is outside of the orb of an exact aspect with another planet using the Ptolemaic aspects. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. So it's it's void, you know, and then it's not void before it actually leaves Aries. Yeah, so this this definition would completely remove any consideration of sign boundary because it all just entirely becomes a matter of is the moon within orb of an aspect, an applying aspect, separating aspect, I don't think is taken into account, or is it not? And do we think that Lily came up with this after years and years of doing horaries and and researching and then came up with this idea or plucked it out of thin air because it made the king happy? Or what do we think happened here? So I don't know because I don't know if this is a correct interpretation of Lily, and I'm not enough of like a Lily scholar to mm, wade into enough. trying to either defend this interpretation or to reject it entirely. I am somewhat suspicious that um, the medieval astrologers like Abu Mashar, like we saw, are clearly mentioning a sign boundary being involved in the definition yeah. of void, of course. I believe when I brought this up to Ben Dykes, he also pointed out that Guido Bonatti is also taking into account a sign boundary as part of their basic definition of void, of course, and that Lily, I believe himself, also mentioned a sign boundary in his definition of void, of course, so that I'm a little bit skeptical that um, the sign boundary thing is just completely not taken into account um, at all. But I don't want to come down too hard either way. I just wanted to outline that what this means effectively is that we've got three different possible definitions of void, of course. Yeah. We have the modern definition that we started with at the beginning of this discussion, which is the one most modern astrologers use at this point over the past few decades. Which um, I think we can safely call the Lily definition for people, because that does oh, he did popularize it, unless the well, award is right, but it's yeah, hard because what was he? Maybe he was a sloppy astrologer. Maybe he or maybe he did research and he went from what they'd been saying all these years about the sign definition and he kept I mean, the guy was probably doing how many horry charts a day was he doing? He was probably researching as he went, going, Well, hang on a minute, the moon, you know, I see the moon as, you know, like I mean, maybe he was one of the biggest researchers of all and we should listen to him. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it is tricky when it comes to um astrologers sometimes in the theory of how they outline something versus what they do actually in chart examples. Maybe there could be differences between those sometimes. And I think maybe, yeah, you know, that's possible. So that we have to take that into account as a possibility, especially Mm. if Sue Ward is saying that this is due to seeing inconsistencies in the way that he's applying this in the actual chart examples. And people can read this actual this article. It's still on um, Sue Ward's website 
or it's on somebody's website, which is horary.com, and it's titled The Considerations Before Judgment by Sue Ward. And if you scroll down to the section about three quarters of the way through, it has a whole section um, titled Void of Course. And she says, contrary to what most of us understood, this does not mean that the aspect has to perfect when the moon is in its current sign. What it does mean is that the application has to be in effect while the moon is in its current sign. Um, Application operates only when the moon or planet is, quote, within orbs of the planet and next meets by major aspect. Um, Blah, blah, blah. This matter largely depends on the definition of application in Lily's terms and those of the authors he drew upon and and what it meant to be within orb. and then she like cites some other examples. Um, the evidence of this, the evidence in Christian astrology supports this almost exclusively. And I conclude that the moon is not vo- in not void, of course, if it is in contacting another planet through the joint moieties. And moieties is like a obscure yeah. medieval orbs. orb system. Whether it whether perfects, it perfects in, and out in or of out of its sign. current sign. So. Just so I understand, so he, so Sue Ward is saying that in these charts of lilies that she studied, the moon, okay, the moon is not void, of course, if contacting another planet through joint moieties, you know, whether or not, say if it's at, I don't know, 29 degrees of um, Sagittarius and, and, the, and Venus is at, Zero degrees of Gemini, but there's no other planets for it to aspect before it changes signs. Then it's not void, of course, because it's going to aspect Venus in in a minute. Yeah, I mean, I think she's she's basically saying right. that if, if if the planet, if the Moon, let's say, is at twenty nine degrees of the sign, but Venus is at one degree of the next sign, yeah. that it's not void, of course, because it's, it's within orb yeah. of a conjunction. Okay. So. That's her definition. Um, right. Where does I don't, this leave us? <laughs> yeah, well, it leaves us with a big mess. But here's the example she cites. She says, the crucial point about this definition of application and having checked all the charts in Christian astrology to see just how Lily uses this term, I found only three that are dubious in this regard. Uh, well, she's listing okay. counterexamples, so we don't, we don't have to go into that. But the point is I mean, just that- Can we just say, good work by Sue Ward? Um, maybe if she's right. I don't know if she's right <laughs> or wrong. There's some astrologers I know that are really into Renaissance astrology that believe very strongly that Sue Ward is right, and this is the working definition of void, of course, that they use, and they think that this was the original definition. But then there's also some Renaissance astrologers, people that practice Renaissance horary and other astrology that strongly believe that Sue Ward's interpretation of this is wrong. Okay. So we're not going to come down on either side of that, but we will say that due to this, at the very least, even if this was a wrong interpretation, it's now created a third variant or a third version of what it means for a planet to be void of course in modern times. Because regardless of if this is correctly what Lily thought, there are now astrologers that are using this definition in modern times in their personal practice based on the belief that this is what Lily did. This would be so a small percentage, though, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know what the percentage is because there's a, a decent number of. I don't want to like name names because I'm not 100 positive on who falls where on this, but there are some rather prominent um, Renaissance style astrologers 
okay. and horary practitioners that I think do use this definition following Sue Ward. The Wardian definition, we should call it. Yeah, the Wardian. I like that. That's a ring to it. <laughs> um, assuming that I'm right that she was the one that came up with this, which I'm pretty sure I am, but just to cover my bases. So, anyways, to back to our overview, though, this means that there's three different definitions then of void of course, potentially. There is one when the moon does not complete an exact Ptolemaic aspect with any planet within the next 30 degrees, which is the Hellenistic definition. Two, the moon does not complete an exact Ptolemaic aspect with another planet until it moves into the following sign of the zodiac, which is the, let's say, the modern definition. And then three, the moon is not applying to an exact Ptolemaic aspect within orb, whatever the orb is of the planet or the regardless moon in this instance, sign. regardless of sign boundary. Yeah. And so if you think about it, they've had about equal, well, let's not take the Wardian definition in just for the moment, but okay. the other two have had about about 50-50 of astrology, this astrology's history as we've defined it today, like since it was first mentioned to now, it's been about 2,000 years, hasn't it? And yeah. it's been about 900 years each, maybe a little bit more on the, uh, you call it modern, I call it medieval Al Morrison version. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely say that. You could split the tradition in half if you, let's say, let's put the Sue Ward definition aside, then yeah, we could say if there were only those first two definitions, then probably almost the first thousand years of the practice of Western yeah. astrology from maybe the first century BCE until the 7th century CE used the the Hellenistic definition, the 30-degree one. And then from about the 8th century forward, astrologers mm. have used the, um, the other definition where it doesn't make another aspect until it changes signs. Yeah. And just to be just to jog my memory, so because I actually had assumed that the changeover came with Lily in the sort of 1600s, but you've explained to me today. In fact, it was first mentioned around seven eight hundred. Um, so yeah, yeah. I was mean, that was it mentioned in seven eight hundred only with regards to horary, or was it no? Well, yes, it was. It it, it came up in the eight in sort of seven eight hundred because of horary, well, not natal. I mean, because that introduced, also is a slightly cloudy, th cloudy thing in the whole thing as well. I mean, it's introduced in the like the eighth century within the con the context of just um, general definitions in introductory okay. works on astrology of like Not concepts that you need to know. Yeah, because okay. it's in Abu Mashar's Greater Introduction, and he's trying to introduce concepts you need to know for everything. Okay. And Al Kabisi is basically just writing a shortened version of Abu Mashar. So um, it was stuff that was supposed to apply to to natal and electional and horary. horary although okay. certainly the new like popularity, like horary was kind of like a new technology, sort of like a, like the iPhone or something like that that yeah. was introduced ten years ago and everybody was using it and it became really popular. Um, horary was a little bit like that, I think, where yeah. once it was introduced and it got really integrated into the tradition, like people started using it a lot more yeah. and. Um, yeah, some of these concepts may have been become more popular partially as a result of that. Yeah. Okay, I have a thesis after okay. this incredibly illuminating and fascinating discussion with you, Chris, which I'm really grateful for. This is my deduction from this, and you tell me what you think. It's not right, my final thing. I just want to get your opinion. Okay, and, I think and be when careful because this might become the Bolin definition, like for the next <laughs> several centuries. Exactly. So, whatever you say. Okay. Right now. All right. 
When you're looking at a natal chart, go Hellenistic. If you're doing horary, you can use the other one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, that might be okay. I mean, because one of the things about the Hellenistic definition is you, you're hardly ever going to see it. So it's almost exactly, not, re not relevant in most discussions. And I think that's good for people not to feel that they're born under a void of course moon. I don't think we need to put that on people if it wasn't invented until the 8th century. Yeah, well, and, and even if you do have a Hellenistic version of a void of course moon, there can still be like mitigate, mitigating conditions exactly. and other exceptions that are going to make it not that bad. Um, you know, that being said, one of the things that appeals to people sometimes about traditional astrology is sometimes even though some of those definitions, like what I was reading from Firmicus, can sound extreme, um, you know, sometimes people do have genuine hardships or trauma or difficulty in their life in certain areas. And sometimes it's it's useful or helpful or or good when the astrology is able to articulate, you know, why or articulate what part of a person's life maybe that they have had yeah, some problems sure. in if they have had that. And there can be something useful and therapeutic about it that mm. doesn't necessarily have to be all, you know, depressing and mm. oppressive but or what have you. Of, often going to be the culprit anyway. So, you know, when you talk about misery, I mean Saturn and misery do go hand in hand. So look at that as well. I just sure. think the idea of the void of course moon, it's almost like saying, you know, your life is, you know, it's not right. And I don't think I and I'm glad that your astrological exposition here has supported the idea that it actually makes sense to use the Hellenistic version at least in natal charts. And, you know, obviously people are going to have tough times. And some people, I know the son of a billionaire who's got Venus square Saturn who doesn't get on with his mum. So, you know, like astrology will always play out. But I don't think that, I mean, I think if astrology, if, if this wasn't in the original re remit, I'm happy not to tell people who were born, you know, I'm happy not to tell people that are born with a void of course moon. It's somehow I don't like the idea of being born with that. It's like, oh, nothing's going to come of your life. I mean, what a horrible thing to have to say to someone. Yeah, I mean, there can be difficult indications in a birth chart. Um, I don't think uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think this is super important using the Hellenistic definition. I think it's something because it was recently rediscovered. Like astrologers, it's only in the past um, ten years or twenty years tops that these texts that contain contain the Hellenistic uh, definition have been translated. So astrologers right. haven't even had very long to start observing this condition um, again in astrology in general. And so that's yeah. one of the things that I think we have to do is that you know when, when that comes up once a year now I guess the next one is in October the last one was in August you know we should pay attention to what happens yeah. on that day or what happens in electional charts and yeah. see what happens and see if uh, that yes. sheds any light on the usefulness of this as a unique and somewhat rare concept in the same way that you know comets there's indications for comets sometimes in some of the ancient texts which also don't happen very often but occasionally when they do for example i think there was like a comet last spring around the time of the coronavirus outbreak in the lockdowns yeah that's true actually we you know, saw it i saw it did yeah, you see it in america um i didn't i was staying inside like way way too much during that time period partially because i was mm. sick but mm. um yeah sometimes there can be very rare astronomical phenomena that when it occurs like 
important things do happen or coincide with it. Yeah. And in fairness, for the sake of historical accuracy, I mm-hmm. I saw that comment comment. Um, I was in France and the coronavirus was already in full swing. Just just so we don't yeah. say it was a portent. It was June and and we'd all been in lockdown since February. So we can't fairly say that it it you know was a portent of the coronavirus because the, it was in full swing. Yeah, just, I just don't for think the it sake of historical accuracy and not freaking people out. <laughs> I think it was interesting that it was discovered around April or something like that is when right. astronomers first became aware that it was coming in it would be coming into view and i do think mm. it's interesting that it coincided with some of the waves of like deaths around the world or some of the first major waves of deaths mm. in some parts of the world but um that's a whole thing mundane astrology is a whole weird thing unto itself and there was a lot yeah. more going on astrologically last year than just that with the pile yeah. up of planets in capricorn and everything it was else. amazing yeah yeah um so in and terms of what of course yeah, the, yeah no, that's very huge... interesting. But can I just say one more thing? Because you were saying like, okay, so now let's look in October when the moon actually goes, you know, void, of course, with the original example. And, you know, right. um, as far as I'm aware, well, I know this because I looked at it, you know, one of your arguments for using whole sign houses is it's it's the oldest, it's the first one. And, you know, why would we just take on these other other house systems that people have since decided to use? And I think we can think, we should think like that. I do. And you know, if people are going to take the trouble to translate these ancient documents and tell us what they mean, then I think it's important that we take them on board. And I, I think for that reason, you know, I really, I'm, I think we should bring it back. Well, <laughs> I'm all let me, for it, except maybe an electional. Let me clarify though: with whole sign houses, yeah. part of my argument is actually just that in the Hellenistic tradition, they used both whole sign houses and different degree-based forms of house division like equal houses or quadrant houses, which is similar to like modern day, let's say Placidus houses. They would use both at once, but they would start with the sign-based approach and then overlay the degree-based approach on top of that. So part of my argument is just that we need to we we've shifted over the past thousand years entirely to the degree-based approach to astrology, partially I think due to horary, and it would be good for us to start taking into account the sign-based approach again, which includes not just whole sign houses, but also whole sign aspects uh, as well. Yeah, no, I I'm all for it. And you know, like I said, I don't know if I said it on camera or off camera, but I saw your argument for whole sign houses. I read your document, and I was like, well, I'm convinced. And then I saw Robert Hand was saying exactly had actually said the same thing to me at a conference. Ten years earlier, when I hadn't, I hadn't swapped. I was, I think, I was using um, Placidus, but I just swapped from then on. I just went, no, nah, that's it. I'm whole sign all the way now. I think, and, and I think with the, if it was there in the beginning, you know, like, and then the monks invented Placidus at some point. It's like, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to go to the root of it, which is why I wanted to have this conversation about the void of course moon. Like, if people are going to decipher these documents, let's listen to what they've got to say. Sure, and I. Um... One of the things I would say, because there's a part of that that I definitely agree with, but I also want to, um, at the end of my book, like I wrote an entire 700 page book called Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune in 2017, which took me 10 years to write and was one of the first comprehensive treatments of ancient Hellenistic astrology as it was practiced from the first century BCE until the seventh century CE, one of the first comprehensive treatments in modern times. But I very deliberately at the end of that book 
in my conclusion, my final page of my final paragraph really um, made it a, a really strong point to say that while I do think that there's um, a good reason to go back and look at the past and to take some of the best pieces of astrology from the past and bring them forward into the future, I don't think the purpose is to go back into the past and to stay there. And I don't want necessarily want to be um, the the result. I don't want this to result in some sort of astrological fundamentalism where people only go back and use ancient astrology and they ignore some of the great innovations that occurred in the later medieval and Renaissance and modern astrological traditions. So I think that actually the best approach is to synthesize some of the best parts from ancient astrology with some of the best parts from modern astrology. And that there's mm-hmm. something to be gained from from all of those different approaches. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I do agree with that, but I also think that you can't just go changing the rules. Like, there's a difference between, you know, you can add the overlay of modern psychological astrology to traditional astrology, and you can add in, you know, Neptune and Uranus and Pluto and all that. But that's not fundamentally changing the rules. That's sort of you don't think so. I mean, that's what I do a lot of in my own work. I work with angels and goddesses and all sorts using right. like the I'm, astrology. I'm a surprised that you're the one arguing for the fundamentalism here, and I'm the one arguing for the <laughs> uh, you know embracing I, I, of modern. Nothing and will ancient. convince me from now on. For me, the void of course moon in a natal chart is the Hellenistic version, and no one's going to talk me out of that. Okay. If you want to say in horary, and the one I don't know what I think yet is um, electional, because I think electional really did it come from horary, so we kind of have to put it in the, the horary basket. I mean, it sort of did in a way, didn't it? It's like okay, a that's a good discussion horary. point. Let, let's focus on that point. So I agree. It's I don't think void of course is that relevant in natal, and it's not going to be super huge of an important consideration. So we'll set that aside and just say not mm. that important for natal. And if you're using the Hellenistic definition, then it's not going to show up in like 99.9% of the charts that you look at, anyways. Yeah. Void, of course, is primarily relevant in electional astrology and in horary astrology. So most not a not a lot of astrologers proportionally practice natal astrology, but there are enough that use some form of electional astrology where this is a genuine question then of what should you use? Yeah. And that's actually a really interesting thing. So so what was your what were you saying about that in the context of electional? Well, what I was saying was that, okay, I can see that horary astrology has almost, you know, got its own definition of the void of course moon, that it's taken to its heart and it's really embedded in there. And I suppose you could see horary astrology and electional astrology as kind of a mirror, you know, because if, you know, right. if you cast a chart, for a horary question, or you cast a chart for opening your new business, it's sort of a similar thing. So I suppose from that definition, I mean, again, I don't know. Is there a clear demarcation between which came first, a electional or horary, or did they kind of come at the same time because they are kind of the same thing? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, um, electional started first, and we have the first okay. full-fledged texts on electional astrology that exist from. The first century BCE and okay. especially the first century CE, whereas um, then it's so there's sort of actual... giving it the Hellenistic thing, then isn't it? But then, um, do I have the courage to start a new business when the moon is void? Of course, I don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know, when it's medieval void, of course, I think I would still rather that the moon had changed signs. So now I've got okay. to deprogram myself. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think just to answer your question, though, that Hori developed out of electional, and electional came okay. first, but they're still very much intertwined in terms of their history and their techniques, and there's a lot of overlap there. Um, to me, the way that I've been approaching this question, just to answer what some people may be asking in terms of how I deal with this, is I think that they're all relevant in some way, but just in differing levels of intensity and relevance. Yeah. Like maybe the worst case scenario is the Hellenistic definition of void, of course, where it's not applying to anything within yeah. the next two days, basically, which is a very extreme and rare condition, which might be potentially very extreme and not good if you were trying to launch a major venture at that time. Like let's yeah. say there's a business that you wanted to launch and you were about to try to found like a new website company that was going to compete with like Google or something like that. Yeah. And you're you're desperately hoping for the success of this venture in the future, you're going to probably want to follow standard electional rules and try to pick a day where the moon is applying to a favorable aspect with like let's say Jupiter in a day chart, like a conjunction with Jupiter. Yeah. Because in, in electional astrology, applying aspects indicate the future and separating aspects indicate the past. Yeah. So whatever the moon is applying to is going to indicate the future of what you initiate at that time. Yeah. And you're more or less making a birth chart for your business. Yeah, exactly. That's the the real promise and that's the thing that's interesting with electional astrology is the, is really the concept that you can deliberately choose the birth chart for yeah. whatever you're starting at that time whether it's a business or mm. a marriage or like a major journey or writing a book. Have you used electional for any of your major books or projects? Yeah. Like I, everything I, for everything. I I mean, you know, if I'm writing a pitch for my next book, I will not send it when the moon is, you know, medieval slash modern void, of course. Okay. I'll yeah, always look at the chart before I send it. And uh, one thing I get a lot, though, is I get the moon in the 12th house a lot when I'm I'm thinking, shall I do this now? Because there's a part of me that thinks if I change my action just because the moon is void, of course, does that even count because the idea was kind of there? But then mm. I often get the moon in the 12th house and somehow that seems to apply that seems to be okay for me um, when it's an astrological matter because I think you know it's hidden and it's secret and it's all moon and because of moonology. So okay. Anyway, yeah. No, I think I, I think okay. Having I've now I think I'd go Hellenistic natal and I think I would look at um, medieval for electional and horary. I think I think because okay. they're so similar, they need to be in the same basket. And the way I do, I do it sort of a hierarchy where I say worst case scenario is the Hellenistic definition. In let's say an electional chart would be the Hellenistic one. I would probably want to avoid that the most if I had a yeah, choice. For sure. Then the next worst one okay. um, is going to be that the moon is, in terms of um, what I actually pay attention to, actually is is the moon applying to within reasonable orb of like let's say. Um, 13 degrees or 12, 12 degrees, which is the average daily motion of the moon, yeah. uh, that it'll, it'll move in a 24-hour period, is the moon applying within 12 degrees to an exact aspect even if there's no sign boundary? And is it a favorable aspect? So even if the moon right. is applying to something like a benefic, if it's not going to complete that while uh, it's still in that sign, but it will hit a benefic as soon as it changes signs within like let's say a few degrees 
then I'll still treat that as a favorable indication that's probably okay to go with if it's like within a tr- twelve or thirteen degrees because of the daily motion. Yeah, with like twelve degrees, which is that okay. actually the the ancient Hellenistic orb of the moon was twelve degrees. They used three degrees for um, degree based aspects for planets, like especially three degrees, but they would extend it to twelve degrees for the moon because the moon moves about twelve degrees in a twenty four hour period. Yeah. So twelve degrees, regardless of sign boundaries, the next one down. And then finally, the the next and sort of least important would be the other definition, which is just: is it not going to complete an exact an aspect before it changes sign boundaries? Only because that happens so frequently. Yeah, um, that's sort of how I structure it myself, just in terms of all of them. Probably because what we're doing here when we're talking about astrology is we're talking about symbolism. We're taking. Yeah. You know, astronomical movements and astronomical placements. And then we're saying, what would that describe if it was describing something or if we were to interpret it symbolically? Yeah. And I don't think the answer is that one of these has a symbolic interpretation that's relevant and the other two don't have any symbolic interpretation, but rather all three of them in some way could probably describe some scenario that's mm-hmm. relevant or, or could manifest in some specific way. It's just a matter of like what priority are you really going to give that if you're using that in electional astrology. And mm-hmm. for me, even if I use that hierarchy of those three, that's still kind of low down on my considerations for electional astrology. And I'm oh, usually is it? Because paying... it's my number one. It's your number one is is just start with like, the moon and what is the moon doing? Yeah. Okay. And I, I mean, thought I just... that was sort of what everybody did. I mean, I think it is to a certain extent only in so much as the concept of void of course has been so popularized and almost overpopularized that um that's the first thing that most people in modern astrology learn about electional astrology is the void of course thing because one one of the things i learned when i started trying to learn electional astrology in the mid 2000s is that there weren't a lot of texts out there written in modern times on electional astrology like there's just not a lot of books on electional i think there was one written finally in the past 20 years like that little short book um, on electional by somebody, but it's not a very common topic. So I don't think most modern astrologers are that familiar with like what some of the traditional rules were for electional astrology and like Hellenistic or medieval astrology necessarily. Well, there's that, there's a niche because you know that's basically what astrologers do a lot of. You know, is people in in my work, people are always asking me when should I get married, when should I, move, you know, move house, when should I do this, when should I do that. I mean, somebody right. should write that book. And it's not going to be well. Me. <laughs> I, I will. I will put it out there that that could be something that that could be filled in the not too distant future, since that is something I specialize in, and that's something my partner and I specialize in. Where we do a podcast each month, where we release four auspicious electional charts for the month ahead, and we um, just tell you like what the good charts are for each month. Right now, we're actually working on the charts for March of 2021. So we're getting ready to record that in the next few days. It's something that's available through our Patreon, our page on patreon.com. But um, I might fill that that need at some point in the not-too-distant future with a work on electional astrology. Because something that I would avoid more, for example, than a void of course moon is like the moon applying to an opposition with Saturn in a night chart, for example. Like that would be worse to me because that's that's more of a definite no. About what's coming up for you in the future, or a definite difficulty to me than than a void of course moon 
using the modern definition, but for, for you, it's more you'd be more wary of the void of chorus between those yeah. two. Yeah, like okay. between those two. I mean, I've just the thing is, I'm my dad was a psychiatrist, <laughs> and he always said to me, Yasmin, you're so black and white. So I have to believe that he was a good judge of my character, and I think I am very black and white. And I think for me, because I I took it to heart, it's always been no void of course. Don't okay. you know? Like if I've got a big meeting, I'll look and I'll. That's the first thing I'll check because even if the sun squaring Saturn or Pluto or whatever, I feel like okay, well you know you can push through things like that. But the void of course moon to me, and and I feel like gosh, God, how many years have we been doing this? Like, but it's always been a non-starter, and now I'm really wondering about that but i think i still will probably listen to it for you know plans but i'm definitely not going to take it into account i'm going to go natal for um hellenistic for natal okay can i throw one last little historical kink in this whole situation oh, yeah. with, with a with a fourth a fourth definition that may exist mm. avoid of course okay I'll, tr- I'll try to keep it short but so um there were interactions between the Greek astrologers, the astrologers who wrote in Greek during the time of the Roman Empire, from the first century through the seventh century CE, there were um, trading ships that would go back and forth between the Roman Empire and India. And as a result of that, there was interaction between the astrologers during that time period. And there were some works on Greek astrology that were translated into Sanskrit during that time. Amazing. As a result of that. Um, so remember how the uh, Greek astrologers, their original word for void of course moon was kenodromia, which means running in the emptiness or running in the void. Well, in the Indian tradition, they have this um, definition that's used that's suspiciously called uh, kemadruma yoga, which is like a basically it's like a transliteration of the Greek. Term kenodromia, where they've just taken the word and how it sounds by pronouncing it out loud, and they've rewritten it in the Sanskrit language or the Sanskrit alphabet, basically. Okay, so listen to this. So, this is just the Wikipedia page. It's not great, but it provides an acceptable definition. It says, Kemadruma yoga is one of the most important yogas formed by the moon. According to Varahamira, who I think lived in like the 6th or 7th century, this yoga is formed when, when one house in front of and behind from the moon are vacant. In other words, the 2nd and 12th house from the moon should be vacant so that this yoga can be formed. This yoga is not at all inauspicious. Oh well, this is dumb. This is just Wikipedia utters, but it, it is considered to be inauspicious. It provides but- strong power to a person. Interesting. Well, I think, yeah, we have to be careful with Wikipedia, but at least the definition is correct, which is that the Indian definition of void, of course, is that the moon is in a sign on its own, and there's no planets either in the sign before the moon or the sign after the moon. Mm. Um, And I think it also extends potentially to like aspects to those signs, although it gets complicated in terms of the Vedic Indian astrologers use a different aspect system than we do in the West, but it's very similar in its concept, which is just the moon is in the sign by itself, and it's neither separating by a sign-based aspect from any planets in the sign before it, nor is it applying 
to in the sign after the one that it's in to any planets in that sign either. So interestingly, um, there's mitigations for this, and the mitigation is well, actually, they don't list the mitigation very well in this, but the, there's some mitigations that were similar to the one in Firmicus about, I think it's like if, if benefics are angular or something like that, then it cancels out the negative indications of that placement. Right. So I just wanted to mention that as a potential <sighs> like fourth one, if you want to throw that out there as well, <laughs> that in the Indian tradition, due to the interaction between the Greek mm. and Sanskrit astrologers, that they also have their own definition of void of course moon. I mean, here my feeling is I don't think that you can just pluck what you like from Vedic astrology. Not you personally. We one can't pluck what one likes from Vedic astrology and just chuck it into Western astrology. And I mean, I haven't thought about it that much, but I've thought about it a bit. You know, I was lucky enough to go to one of those East West conferences in India that Alex Trenowith organizes. And um, you know, so we had a lot of discussions there and I mean, I know enough about Vedic astrology to know that you kind of, as much as I would like to mix them, because I'm a meditator, I'm a chanter, I, you know, I work with the Hindu goddesses and all that, but you can't, I don't think you can take from Vedic astrology and put it in Western astrology. I think that's just too much. It's just because there's, there's so much in Vedic that we don't understand that, you know, at least with Lily, you know, people have done the work for us in the past or people like, you know, you and Sue Ward and whoever are doing the work now, but. No, yeah, not going to get well, that. I'm not going to buy that one. <laughs> uh, really quickly, I just because I was just remembering where that came from, and it was from the Yavana Jataka. Um, I know this is going on really long, but I just want to make oh, sure no, I include right. this. I'm actually just curious to look that up. What was it called? It's called Kema Druma Yoga, and yeah, yoga just okay. means like a combination. Or yeah. so this is from Chapter Ten of the Yavana Jataka, and the Yavana Jataka was. Um, one of the earliest texts where some scholars like David Pingree argue that this is a text on Greek astrology that was written in Egypt sometime around the first or second century in Greek, and that he thought that it was translated at some point into Sanskrit and then synthesized or merged with the indigenous astrology of India at that point to create a sort of hybrid approach, which then became what we know of as Indian astrology over the past 2,000 years. So in chapter 10 of this text, um, it has this definition of void of course. It says, if a planet is in the second place from the moon, those who understand yogas call it sunafa. If it is leaving the moon, they call it anaphora. And if there are planets on both sides of the moon, they call it uh, Darudua, which is just like a transliteration of the Greek term Dorophoria, which means bodyguarding or spearbearing. He says, if these yogas with respect to the moon do not occur, and there are no planets in the cardines, which are the angular houses, the first, fourth, tenth, and seventh, um, this configuration lacking the aspect of all the planets is called Kenadruma, and mm. it is of the lowest influence. Right. Um, but I mean, so there's quite a lot of mitigating things there. I mean, and, and also, uh, I don't know, actually, are Vedic houses the same as, you know, Western Western houses? Um, a little bit. There's some overlap, yeah. So, okay. but really quickly, it gives an interpretation later. It says, the authorities say that one born under Kenadruma 
is a low slave to others who does not enjoy family, wife, home, food, <laughs> one whose actions and conduct are reviled and who practices various devices. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, know. but the point was that it seems to be defining this in this text. So so you have to have the moon in a house with no house with an empty house before it, an empty house after it, and no planets in any of the angular houses. Yeah, that seems to be the definition that it's giving here, which is oddly sort of similar a little bit to Firmicus's statement of having no benefics in the angular houses, which he used as a canceling thing. So that could give us some indication that this really was influenced by or had some connection with the Greek tradition. But it's interesting that in this context, at least, they're defining it as like sign-based aspects and a, a sort of bodily connection where the moon is not applying to any aspects by a sign-based aspect and the next sign following it. Yeah, yeah. And with Firmicus, was it? Was it Firmicus you were referring to a second ago? Yeah. Yeah. Was he saying no planets in the angular houses or no planets on the actual angles? Uh, Well, that's a tricky question in terms of Firmicus because Firmicus is drawing on early sources and Firmicus mixes whole sign houses with equal houses. So he could have had something in mind that's like an overlap between the two because in his delineations, he'll go through and delineate um, using whole sign houses and he'll say a planet in an angular whole sign house is strong, but then he'll say, however, a planet that's on the exact degree of an angle like the midheaven will be the strongest. So there's like degrees of variation. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that I don't think we have to bring the fourth one into account. I think we can make okay. our considerations before judgment based on uh, the first three. Okay. Because um, I think that was a Sanskrit astrologer and a Western astrologer having a chat and something being lost in translation. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that fascinates me about the history of Western astrology is that that is the astrological yeah. tradition, which is like yeah. every time you put two astrologers in a room together. They will start talking and comparing notes, and their yeah. astrologies will rub off on each other. Yeah. And sometimes they may not agree, and sometimes they may get like, into arguments. But mm. nonetheless, even if there's like a tension between their approaches, mm. there's still like some sort of exchange or rubbing off that occurs between the traditions. Yeah. And that's yeah. basically how we got to the type of astrology that we have today: is four thousand years of astrologers. Um, you know, trading techniques back and forth and developing mm. new ideas and, and innovations, yeah. but also passing on as best as they could certain traditional doctrines. But like yeah. a game, I don't know if you have this, but in like elementary school, they had this game called Telephone where like 10 kids would sit in a circle and one- Oh yeah, Chinese would... Whispers, I think we called it very in- politically incorrectly back okay. in the day in Tasmania, Australia. In Tasmania, we yeah, whisper. Think... One kid whispers to the next, to the next, to the next, and you see what comes out. Yeah, and then what's funny is by the end of the circle, you know, the message will often be much different than yeah. than what it started as. Mm. Which is why I like to go to the source. Yeah, so that's that's what's useful about going back and studying the astrological yeah. tradition and studying the ancient sources is sometimes it gives you a clearer picture of how things started and yeah. you don't always have to go back and stick with whatever that original message was, but at least if you go back and study the entire tradition, you can Move forward more deliberately and more, mm. um, you know, consciously in terms of picking what definition you think is makes the most sense, and then going from there. Hmm. Whereas I would be more black and white about it and say, go to the source. If somebody can figure that out, go to the source. 
because that okay. is and and I and I suppose on one level I I do believe astrology in a way to be some kind of divine revelation you know so as much as I think you can kind of add to it like I said before I'm I'm not a big fan of changing the rules okay but what a but, great conversation Chris Brennan thank you so much I've had so much fun I'm not, yeah, I'm not thank cutting you. you off but you know just literally like wow it was great yeah, thank you for for doing this. I know this is a you've been wanting to do like a short interview with me for a little while. You said <laughs> we, we were going to do like thirty minutes, and then I said I realized this could actually be an interesting topic, talking about the void of course moon, and it's something I'd been intending to do a longer podcast on for a while. Yeah. and then we just sort of um, did it um, suddenly at the spur of the moment. I think this went pretty well, and yeah, so much food the, for thought. The moon was void, of course. So hysterically. So I think yeah. So as long as our recording doesn't like disappear immediately oh after God. this, I think. Well, I have recorded maybe, me talking. I think I haven't got you on my recording. I've just got me. Well, as long as we've got your end of the conversation, I think we'll be we'll be good. Fill in the gaps. Right. People people infer what what the rest was. <laughs> yeah, I can um, say right. whatever. Amazing. Where can people find out more information about you and what you have going on? Well, people can find me at my website yasminbolan.com. Um, they can find me um on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Amazon and and all that and you know I I love astrology I'm passionate astrologer and uh you know but give full respect to people like you who've like gone back and done the really hard yard so people like me can come along and just pick your brains and you know just get the easy way <laughs> Awesome. Well, that, I really... that sounds bad, but you know what I mean. Like, I'm really grateful to people like you who have written, who, who've helped made it easy for people like me to kind of understand the context of the whole thing. Because I learned astrology and on a computer, you know, and it just works. And you just test it and you go, oh, it works. Okay, fine, I've got it. But when you start to really look into it, you know, that's when it blows your mind. So, yeah, one of the beautiful things about astrology and being an astrologer is there's many different. Ways to be an astrologer, and there's many different roles and ways that you can um, build a career doing astrology. And you don't have to just be locked into one thing. And there's many different people that specialize in different areas. So for me, one of the things I decided to specialize in is the history of astrology, and that's what I went to school for. Um, but that's not everything, and that's not for everyone. So I'm always happy when I can. Um, you know, use some of that knowledge and like pass it on to other people based on what I've studied and everything else. So thanks for giving yeah. me the opportunity to do that today. Oh no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And you know, I mean, I would love to be able to like you have just the whole timeline of astrology in your head like that with just everything completely like, you know, I, I'm still shocked by looking on your website just for just to finish off this, you know, that that when you give your timeline, I think I said this to you at the start, but Hermes Trismegistus doesn't come in until your third kind of period. You start in 5th century BCE, then the 4th century, then the 3rd century, 2nd century, and then in the 1st century BCE we get a mention of Hermes Trismegistus. Like I'm amazed that there's one, two, three, four hundred years of astrological history. I thought it, I thought Hermes Trismegistus was about, well, I, I kind of thought Hermes Trismegistus was older than he is, frankly. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean I, there's a lot of... Yeah. Like early legendary stuff around astrology, and sometimes part of the challenge is unraveling the legends and the mythology that's built up from yeah, what true. actually happened and what the actual surviving evidence is. But most of like um, 
Western astrology and Hellenistic astrology starts around the first century BCE, but there were 2,000-year-long traditions in Mesopotamia and Egypt of mundane astrology that built up to that point. So there's a lot of history. And we're talking about stargazing, not entrail deducing. Yeah, I mean, astrology started as like a late form of divination where they started noting um, correlations between celestial movements and earthly events, like eclipses. And we're talking 5th century BCE. More like 2000 BCE is when the first records of of astrological omens are being recorded. Actually, funny you should mention that because I actually know that because for one of my books, I wrote Angel Astrology 101 with a woman called Doreen Virtue who's since abandoned everything to do with the new age and become a fundamentalist Christian. So it was very interesting because, and she, yeah, and she was kind of making the change just as we were writing the book. So she, I think, was a little bit conflicted about writing it at all with me. Um, And so she got me to do a whole lot of research into Jesus, for one thing, which was, you know, the fact that Jesus almost certainly would have known astrology because he was a Chaldean priest and back in those days everybody who was a Chaldean priest studied astrology. But one thing I found when I was researching that was um, the oldest markings that can be found, um, cave markings in France, they're 26,000 years old. Okay, so we're talking quite old, 26,000 years old, and um, of the sun and moon cycles, the lunar cycle basically. Presumably because they needed to know not when the moon was void as course, but when the moon was going to be full and they could actually see at night. That's, and also as a way to count the seasons, I suppose. But 26,000 years old. So, you yeah, know. there's a lot of archaeo, interesting archaeoastronomy stuff with things like that, or like Stonehenge and that being yeah. oriented towards the solstices and the equinoxes, yeah, which of course yeah. later became the basis yeah. of the trop- tropical zodiac. Yeah. Um, two, for people that are interested in the history of astrology, though, my two favorite books I'd recommend are one, A History of Horoscopic Astrology by James Holden, which is my favorite book okay. on the history I of astrology. Think I have that on my shelf and I haven't read it yet. It's really good. Uh, okay. It focuses on like, Telling the history very concisely, based on especially telling you who the major astrologers were in any yeah. era. So it's like it has a few page section on William Lilly okay. and what his book was about and why he's important, or it has a few page section on, you know, Claudius Ptolemy or Abu Mashar or some of the other astrologers we've talked about here. Yeah. So that's a really good one. Yeah. The other good one is Nicholas Campion and his his two volume series titled A History of Western Astrology, Volumes One and Two. So okay. if people want to learn more about the history, I'd definitely recommend checking those out. Yeah. Okay. I will. Because I'm cool. getting more and more interested. I've always, you know, thought of myself as a really hardcore modern astrologer, but I'm more and more yeah. interested in all this. So All right. Well, have you have you read my book? No, I will be reading your book and I'll right. be uh having you on my radio show to talk about it, please. <laughs> I might I might need to send you a copy then. So you'll have to send me your Oh no, your... I'd be delighted to buy it with pleasure. I'll buy it from Amazon or somewhere less politically incorrect. Yeah, find find bookstores everywhere. Well, in the UK, um They're all closed. I'm trying to think of the is it Treadwells, I think, is the Treadwells, we've got Daunt Books, we've got Waterstones. But I'll buy it and I'll read it with, with great interest. Wat- Watkins, that's my favorite. Watkins, yes, Watkins, Wat- Watkins is, is amazing. They've always done a very good job of yeah. when my and book came out. And they're certainly online now as well. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Um, thanks, yeah, again for this invitation and for having this conversation with me. I appreciate Persisting. it. Persisting. 
Yeah, this is perfect. And thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast or uh, Yasmin's show, wherever you're listening to this. Um, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amore, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, and Issa Sabah. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astrogold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.